Hi, this is David Dye, author of Courageous Cultures, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is David Dye. David works with leaders around the world who want to achieve transformational results without sacrificing their humanity. He's the president of the consulting firm, Let's Grow Leaders. He gets it because he's been there. A former executive and elected official, David has over two decades of experience of leading teams, building organizations, and working with boards of directors to transform their effectiveness. He earned his BA in political science from University of Colorado and his master's degree in management from Regis University. He and his partner in life and business, Karen Hurt, are dedicated to their philanthropic initiative, Winning Wells, which provides clean water wells to communities struggling with access to safe water throughout Southeast Asia. He lives outside Washington, D.C., and is here to talk about his book, Courageous Cultures, How to Build Teams of Micro-Innovators, Problem Solvers, and Customer Advocates. Welcome, David. Thank you, Bill. It's such a pleasure to be with you. It's so great to have you. David, I always want to hear from people what your perspective is when you were growing up. Who's someone who influenced or inspired you? You know, the first person that comes to mind when you ask that question is, his name was Gary Pratt. And Gary was one of my very first uh, scoutmasters when I was in Boy Scouts. And I'm smiling as you asked the question because we would have so many good conversations in the car. We'd be driving to a volunteer activity or we'd be driving on a camping trip or driving back from the camping trip. And Gary must have been in his late 20s at that point. And, you know, me, my early, early teens, preteens and I learned so many different leadership lessons from Gary and life lessons too, not just leadership, but those times were, were pretty meaningful. I think a lot of us can relate to that, having either an uncle or a coach or a scoutmaster, someone who we got to spend time with driving around. What's one story or example specifically that you remember from driving with Gary and just getting his perspective on things? Integrity. He was a big integrity guy. And talking about how you go through life and, you know, at the end of any particular day, what you have is the extent to which people can trust you. And that's a currency in life. And you're building it and you're banking it from the very beginning. And the more those commitments that you keep to yourself and with other people, the more currency you have and the more you've got in the bank and the less, consequently, the other direction. But as a young man, for me, that was, he made it cool. I don't know how to explain that, but, and I suppose it's that way for everybody. Your parents tell you things, but when he said it, gosh, there was just something cool about being a person of integrity and building up that kind of influence in the world. Do you remember a particular situation where that lesson or that model or those values came into play in helping you make a decision? Oh, many, many. And one time when I was in mid-level manager role, we had a situation where the executive team and I had been talking with a partner agency about doing some work together. And our chief operating officer had made a verbal commitment that we were going to do the program. 
And when I actually analyzed what it was going to look like, it was impossible unless we overburdened one or two of our employees at a ridiculous level. And I said, no, we're not going to do that. And they said, okay, but they were not willing to have that conversation with the partner agency. And there was some hemming and hawing and they, and, and the executives, part of the team said that they would like, they were, their preference was to go ahead and ask our employees to do this burdensome thing that was not, in my opinion, was not right. So that was one of those moments where Gary's emphasis on, you know, on integrity for me came through. And when we had the meeting, I took responsibility for it with our, with this potential partner and said, listen, you're a fantastic organization. We'd love everything you're doing. And we goofed. If I gave you the impression that we could do this, I've evaluated since, and we're not going to be able to do it. I'm very, very sorry, but we're just not going to be able to do it. And, you know, to apologize to them and take responsibility required me to look bad to this other leader. But for the people that I was leading, that sense of integrity and that sense of doing the right thing by them, I just don't think any leader can overestimate the importance of treating your people well and fairly and not balancing your mistakes on their back. What I so love about that story, David, is that it illustrates how there's a cost to integrity and you balance that cost to the cost of overburdening the employees and giving them something that they potentially could have failed at, which also would have looked bad, but you stepped in. And you said, this is a moment where I need to do something. And you probably thought it was going to be cool and easier based just upon the stories that Gary told you. But you learned something and you grew as a result of that process, I imagine. I did. And it's it's one of those things that I don't know that the employees and the staff who were saved from what would have happened ever even knew about it. But I knew and it was easier to sleep that night, I guess, is the, the thing I would say. And, you know, in the trust that you build up with people when you do need to ask them to do something difficult. I mean, I know we've got so many entrepreneurs listening and, you know, when you do have to ask your people to go that extra mile and do the extra things and having the trust that you really are looking out for them is, is vital. Well, we're going to get really into a lot of the ideas in the book of Courageous Cultures. So why don't we start with the concept of courage? What is courage in the workplace from your perspective? What got us interested in courageous cultures and this this whole concept and idea is, you know, in our leadership development and management training work, we would be working with executive teams and frequently we would hear executives say things like, why am I the only one who's coming up with ideas? Why am I the only, the only one solving problems? You know, I'm sending managers out and they're looking at things and but all I'm getting back is fluff. And then in those same organizations, we do some frontline training work and you talk to frontline employees and frontline leaders and you'd hear things like, "Ah, you know, they don't really want to hear what I've got to say. They're not really interested in our opinion. I can share something, but it's not going anywhere. And, you know, you sit back and you scratch your head and you say, are you guys working for the same company? Mm -hmm. You've got these situations where, and they're very widespread, where senior leaders or executives want ideas and they want contributions. And you've got frontline employees and team members who have ideas and have things that they can contribute, but there's this gap. And part of it is what we describe as the courage gap. And there are a number of things going on there. So what we did was we went to the University of Northern Colorado and we actually partnered with their social research lab because we wanted to dive in and really understand what's going on and how this works. And so when you, to answer your question, when you're talking about courage at work, what is that? Well, It's a number of different things, but what we're ultimately talking about in a courageous culture 
is a culture where silence isn't safe. And talk about psychological safety and people maintain safe silence. Well, in a courageous culture, silence isn't safe. Consistent contribution is the culture. You know, one of my favorite definitions of culture is Seth Godin, where he says, culture is really people like us do things like this. So in a courageous culture, it's everybody speaking up, solving problems, contributing micro innovations, not like the blue ocean strategy things. It's not the executives doing that. I mean, it can be, that's great, but it's every team member at every level looking and asking, hey, how can this be better? How can we advocate for our customer here? How can we better serve? And every leader, every business owner needs that. Well, we're in a unique time in history. And I wonder what your observations have been about how courage is observed or demonstrated, especially in the current climate of working from home during the pandemic lockdown. There's a lot of different directions you can go with that. You know, first, what we have observed is that there are so many people who the deck has been shuffled, things have been transformed, the, the world has changed, and everybody is having to do the best they can from where they are with what they have. And that creates opportunity. And I love this shuffling of the deck in some ways. And I don't, don't get me wrong, this is a a very, very tough time. So I don't want to overplay the positive because, you know, you'll certainly have listeners who are struggling and in some, some dire straits and it's tough. It's something we have to grieve. It's a transition we have to be a, a get accustomed to and so on. But at the same time, from a leadership perspective, if you've been relying on any kind of the more negative leadership perspectives, fear, power, control, things like that, those aren't going to work anymore. And it requires the courage to contribute what's authentic, what's real, to show up thinking about how things can be better in this moment. And so when you're, one of the, the coolest examples of that I've seen is Kelly, who's the chief operating officer for a staffing company in Florida. And she and her team, they hustled. They moved everybody, everybody to work from home. And then they put out this internal document where they had sourced, including from us, but they had sourced from a number of thought leaders the very best strategies for working at home, for working remotely, for connecting with your people, and did this beautiful internally branded guide to working from home and keeping it going. And, and in a short period of time, collected success stories from around the organization that they were then able to share. And so in just a few weeks, they took a situation that could feel disruptive and panicky and so forth and turned it into a positive. And here are the opportunities. Well, that takes courage because you don't know where things are going. If you're relying on having to see your people, which prior to that they were, you don't know what that change is gonna look like. And so it takes courage to be able to do those kinds of things. Another thing that I like about the example you just shared, David, is how Kelly took this initiative and it gave people something to align around. In putting in extra effort, they may have had a lot of energy through nervousness or insecurity about how things are working when they've lost the boundaries and the typical reference points of being in an office. And now they got something to contribute to that they were energized about and sharing these success stories of working from home and applying some of these best practices that were put out in the document. It's exactly right. Yeah. Having the leaders demonstrating what it could look like and the opportunities there, I think, helped because you know, like so many of their teams, they had managers who, they, you know, on the tough side of things and the challenges presented by all of this, it used to be where you could just walk around your office and you connect with people. They're there. You're passing by. You say, hey, how's it going? 
all of that goes away in this environment. And so it was taking them a lot more intentional time to do some of their basic staff development, staff connection. And so it requires you to just completely reshuffle the deck, be willing to set aside the ways of doing things you had, but to focus back in on what's actually important. And this is where I think that courageous cultures come into play, particularly as we move forward and, and out of this into whatever the new world looks like. And we're not going to know that for a while, but it's the courage to say, this is what really matters. And what have we stopped doing that we don't need to do anymore? Mm-hmm. I'd love to get your response to this, which is I've heard so many people mistakenly say, once we get back to normal, once we just get over this, and they think that it's going to suddenly be one day it's over, and then we go back to what it was like in December of 2019. And I don't share that belief. Nor do I. And I don't think you do either. <laughs> when people are saying, we just have to wait this out, and then we can get back to normal, they're responding out of fear or misinformation or different perspectives that probably aren't serving their people or their companies very well. How do you help them look and see that if they drew upon different personal traits and at least developed experiments or some other technique to lead them out to saying, listen, now is the time we need your leadership. Now is the time we need you to step forward and to provide a steadying influence and to provide channels for people to contribute their best work. How do you start that conversation and begin to help someone who has responsibilities exercise their ability to contribute in that way? Well, there are, are built so many layers in that question. <laughs> and a, so let's start with going back to the the mindset that you described to somebody who, you know, just, we just have to wait long enough and it's going to go back. Well, that's a normal human way to feel, isn't it? That's part of the grieving process. And it's that bargaining that, you know, we're all familiar with the stages of grief and so forth. And there's denial. Well, this isn't happening. And then I'm angry about it. And I'm depressed about it. And then I'm, you know, I'm bargaining about, oh, I just have to wait it out. Well, that's normal. And so if you are a leader who's wrestling that with yourself, so have some compassion for yourself and let yourself feel those things and go through them, knowing that then you can look at the world with a realistic set of eyes. And I think, Bill, what you and I are both saying here is that the realistic set of eyes is that the rubber band has been stretched. It's not going to stretch, spring back into shape. And you've already got some of those signals going on. So one, you know, for instance, Twitter just recently said, hey, everybody's working from home forever, as long as you want to. And I think you have got CFOs and directors of finance and business owners all over the world right now who are doing the math and going, wait a minute, we are still running our business well in some cases, not every case, but some cases going, huh, do we really need all this real estate that we're leasing or, or have purchased or that we've been using? So let's just take that one practical example. That's not coming back the same way it was. There's no way. Not now that it's been proven for some organizations that the work from home thing does work. Then you've got others who have whole different circumstances who are not working from home or struggling in different ways, who are impacted by the disease realities that we're having to deal with. And we don't know when, when and how those are going to change. Are we hopeful for a vaccine? Absolutely. The world's mobilized to try to get there, but we don't have one yet. And we don't know if or when we will. And so I am not a prognosticator. I'm not a futurist. I can't tell you what any of that's going to look like, 
but the world has changed and we don't know what the future is going to be. But I think we can confidently say it's not going to be what it was. Too much has changed. And there's, you know, too many unknowns. So that's the first part of your question is, you know, what do you say to somebody who's going with that? Well, first have some compassion, allow yourself to feel the things, and then start to look at what some of those realities are. Then from there is where we get into the courageous cultures. One of the steps that we encourage every leader to take is what we call navigate the narrative. And what we mean by that is every one of us has a moment or more, usually several, of courage in our life. Maybe it's work-related where we took a stand for something. One of our favorite things to do is to ask leaders, hey, what, what is that moment of courage for you? And the answers are just phenomenal, the different things that people say, but we've all got them. And so what for you, as you're listening now, is a moment of courage you've had in the past that you can tap into, that you can ground yourself in and say, hey, you know what? I do have the ability to face the unknown. I do have the ability to not know what's going to happen, be okay with that, and pull the team together and say, hey, team, here's the thing. One of the things that, that we always say is that clarity is the antidote to uncertainty. You don't know, you're not certain about the future, but we can be 100% clear about what we're going to do today and about what our goal is for the coming month and about how we're going to work through these changes and transformations and all of the challenges that we're facing. And then as a leader to communicate our belief to our team that absolutely I know, I believe that as a team, we are capable of overcoming this and working our way through it. And it's going to require some significant changes, but we can do it. And I think that all the business leaders who are listening to this now, I hope you're saying to yourselves, you know what? I could be sharing this message. I could use these words to share that hope and give direction to my team so that they know we're working towards this. There's a long-term direction and a short-term plan. Yeah, that's exactly right. You got the direction and then you've got the current short-term plan that everybody can wrap their head around. There are ways that people, there are obstacles that you mentioned in the book and you detail very nicely. And I remember that you referenced Jason Fried, the co-founder of Basecamp. And he talked about that people want to contribute more ideas and solve problems creatively, but they've got to understand that it's hard for people to speak up and it's risky when there aren't a lot of incentives because you're putting yourself out there. You mentioned five obstacles to courage, to exhibiting, mm. demonstrating, embodying courage in the workplace. And they were that people don't think leadership wants their ideas, that they're waiting for someone to ask, that they lack the confidence to share or the skills to share effectively. And they think that people don't think that anything will happen so they don't bother. From your conversations with business leaders who are looking to build that courage and effective operations within organizations, what do you think is top of mind right now in terms of those obstacles that you're hearing these days? Yeah, it really depends on the organization. But those, as a leader, if you want people contributing consistently, and right now, I mean, I think as a leader, we'd be crazy not to have all hands on deck. Hey, if you've got an idea that's going to help us to move forward and that has potential to better serve our customer or enhance a process that's going to allow us to be more effective and more profitable and have more positive impact for our customers, gosh, we'd be crazy not to get all of those ideas. So knowing that the top five things that keep those ideas from being shared are, are what you just listed. People don't think leadership wants them, but they're not asking, they don't know how to share, and they don't think anything will happen. As a leader, you want to do everything you can to counteract those. And so throughout Courageous Cultures, some of the skills that we share, the practical things, the outworking there, 
help you to counteract those. So one example from what we call respond with regard. So you can be asking for ideas. You can be specific about what you want, having what we call courageous conversations, asking courageous questions, questions that say, hey, what's really ticking off our customer right now? Like that's a courageous question because it, it implies you are aware there's something and that you really want to hear it. And it exists. <laughs> so you ask that question, well, you're going to get some answers, right? Or you start saying, hey, we've got this strategic goal that we need to meet in the next six months and all hands on deck. This is the clarity where we need ideas. And so ideas start coming. Well, what do you do next? And this is where many leaders drop the ball, where you've got an idea that's contributed. Well, it's all, there's one of four things that are going to be the case with that idea. First is maybe it's a great idea. So, okay, cool. Let's try it. Let's test it. And if you can, let's put the person who had the idea, involve them in that implementation. And as smaller organizations and entrepreneurial organizations, that's often easier to do. So first you can trial it. Second is, and this is surprising. We talked with uh, Carlos, who was a senior executive at a very large um, national, like top 10 national finance institution. And as we were asking about their suggestion system and, and so on, he said, yeah, what we're finding is that 50% of the suggestions that are made have already been implemented. And so I said, well, that's great. Have you let the people know that their idea was implemented before they suggested it? And he and his team scratched their head and went, you know what? That makes all the sense in the world. And no, we haven't done it. And so if people are suggesting something that's already in process, again, thank them. Thank you so much for thinking about this with us. Good news. That was such a good idea. We're actually doing it. Here's where you can see it. Here's who you can talk to to learn more. Or then you've got the idea that is not entirely fleshed out. Maybe it's missing information. It doesn't have everything it needs. You know, and that's the kind of idea where sometimes it's easy to dismiss those and ignore them. Well, if we ignore them, we're feeding into that fear that people have of, well, my managers just think this is how we've always done it. That's how we're always going to do it. They don't really want it. No. So instead, what if we said, thank you so much for thinking about this with us. I really appreciate it. Hey, listen, here's some information you may not have had or some competing objectives or an obstacle we ran into when we tried this last time. I would love to get your views on what we can do to overcome these or how this might work in the future. Or if it's not strategically aligned to say, hey, I appreciate you thinking about this. And over here, this direction is where we really need your ideas right now. So the point is that as you're responding to ideas, to start with gratitude, you get more of what you encourage and celebrate, right? Then follow up with the contextual response is what's going on with that idea? Is it a good idea? Is it already there? Is it need more information or is it just not aligned right now? And then give them what they need and then invite them to continue contributing. You know, and a, a very practical example of this is I give blood regularly. And I, when I moved to Maryland, I'm from Colorado. When I moved to Maryland, I started giving through the Red Cross and it's brilliant. I give blood and a couple of weeks later, I get this email from the Red Cross that says, hey, we wanted to let you know your donation is on its way to this specific, you know, to Johns Hopkins Memorial in Baltimore, where it's going to change a life. Thank you so much for your contribution. And then there's the invitation. And here's a big red button where you can schedule your next donation. It's the same process. It's kind of like they've taken some of the Amazon uh, customer feedback and keeping them in the loop and applied it to Red Cross donations, which is terrific. Exactly. And whether it's Amazon or your florist or the Red Cross, you know, customer service, they're all doing a good job now, the, the ones who are good at it, they're doing a good job of automating all that. Well, 
You may not have a big fancy computer system, but you don't need one. You're a human being. You can say, thank you. Here's some more information and then invite them to come back and do it again. And if we consistently do that by responding with regard, we're building a culture that values contribution, says that's exactly what you ought to be doing. And I think that during this time of pandemic lockdown, people do have more discretionary time, at least for those who had a commute. And you at least have an extra hour a day to be thinking of these things, to be able to connect with people, to ask questions, and really listen to the answers. So I hope that this inspires people to start listening with regard and responding in ways that encourage more of this type of feedback and these types of conversations. You know, there it's not, and you're absolutely right, first, Bill, and I would add to that, that it's also the case that this has shuffled the deck for folks who aren't doing the work from home thing and have lost their commute. So I'm specifically thinking of some of our healthcare providers who have, if anything, been working more than they've had to, you know, for normal with 30, 40%, you know, overage types of rates. And it's just crazy what they're having to deal with. But we've also heard from some thinking specifically of a uh, director of rehab, and she's part of the crisis response team at a hospital uh, where you are in Pennsylvania. And her name's Jill. And she was sharing with us how that in having to respond to all of this, they've had to set aside some of the regulations that normally prohibit innovation or at least can keep it from happening. And in doing that has opened the door for people to say, hey, how can we do this? Well, what if we did this? Well, what if we did that? And there's more willingness to be inventive and play and find solutions because of the current situation. So whether you are overtaxed and in a very hard situation like they are, or you've got a little bit more time on your hands than you might normally have had, Either way, there are opportunities here if, as leaders, we're taking advantage of them. Dave, that's a great perspective. And I don't want this conversation to take place without introducing and emphasizing the term from your book, micro-innovations. It's so important for people to recognize that you don't have to lead a huge transformational initiative when you have opportunities to make small changes. But what else characterizes a micro-innovation from the way you define it? Well, you know, so often when you think of innovation with a capital I and in an organizational kind of concept, you know, it's your entire mission and strategy where this is how we make it, you know, it's uh, Netflix transitioning from mailing things to making their own shows or delivering it streaming. You know, it's those giant, huge innovations. Well, courageous cultures can do that. But what we're talking about with a micro innovation, they're the day-to-day enhancements, solutions that solve a problem, that increase the efficiency of a process, that improve the customer experience. And so, you know, it's the nurse that says, this was an actual example in some of our research, the nurse who said, you know, I'm realizing that my patients are just more comfortable and I tend to get better ratings from them after the fact when I introduce myself and tell them what I'm there to do and ask them their name, like just that little thing. Well, as that best practice was identified, and then transitioned throughout the organization, it helped improve patient satisfaction scores. And ultimately, your hope, obviously, is that that reflects in the healthcare that's being provided. You know, it's the the team that's running a database that says, you know what, this isn't giving us what we need. And they don't just deal with it. They don't just suck it up and do the work around. They figure out how it can be better, and they solve that problem. David, isn't the goal of building a courageous culture to raise the level of interactions to a more meaningful level of trust and truthfulness on a consistent level, not just 
now and again, or you know, special occasions. What is an example of an organization that's embraced this practice and demonstrated the benefits of really embracing it and what I call putting in the work? You can't get to a new place unless you put in the work and continually recognize, appreciate, highlight when people are exhibiting the behaviors that you want to become built into the organization. What was an example from your work or your research of a culture that's actually done this and made some gains? Several come to mind on the far end of the continuum that might be a little bit more candor than any of us are comfortable with is, uh, you know, Ray Dalio, who wrote Principles and Bridgewater. You know, he shared in his TED Talk this example of how a team member called him out in an email and said, Hey there, Ray, you are not prepared for that meeting. In fact, I rate your performance a D minus. If you need help in the future, let me know. Well, that might be not as diplomatic as most of us could handle, but Ray took that and he values candor. And he is of the opinion that you are not allowed. It's not healthy for you to have a contrary opinion unless you share it. It's just, you've got to share them for the good of the organization, the team. So not only was that meaningful for him, not only did he take it well, he shared it in a TED Talk with millions of people around the world. So you've know, got that at one level. In a little bit more closer to home type of example, thinking of the hospital, the rehab team, where what they have done is a micro-innovation was that they have one person at that team meeting who has to play the role of the patient. And so they might ordinarily be you know, representing the nurses in, in that setting. Well, they'll bring another representative for the nurses, and that person's job is they're going to play the role of the patient. And this role rotates throughout different meetings. And so that particular an example of how that worked out in practice was they were redoing their scheduling system because you know frequently there'd be a problem where rehab would show up to help a patient with their rehabilitation and then there'd be blood work being done or the patient had been rolled out for tests or x-rays or whatever. And so it was inefficient. So they said, okay, well, we got to redo our scheduling system. So as this conversation is going on, the person playing the role of the patient raises their hand and says, hey, I want to know my schedule too. And if I know my schedule, then I've got visitors, I've got family members, then they can know what's going on and then they'll know when to be here and not be here. And that would be really helpful to me as the patient. Well, that makes all the sense in the world. And it was not an easy thing to do because then the conversation went on and said, well, but gosh, how can we commit to that? you know, things change. It's a rapidly shifting environment and we don't want patients and their families to be let down. And, and the patient said, hey, listen, I'm an adult. I understand things change, but if it's right 80% of the time and my visitors can have that kind of assurance, that's good enough. That's going to help everybody. And so they made that change. It's a micro innovation. It's not redoing the entire thing. It's not rethinking the entire patient care experience, but it's one improvement in a process that provides better service to the customer. Which might be a couple lines of code, making sure that the customer gets sent an email notice when something gets scheduled. Right, right. Not that difficult. You know, it's funny. I'm just thinking when you're talking about code, I was doing a, a lot of online ordering and uh, registering for things this morning. And one of them, I had to order a replacement part for something. And I went to type in my address. And I have gotten so used to that micro innovation where you type in just the first part of your address and like the first two letters of your street and the rest of the address pops up. This website didn't have it. I'm like, oh my goodness, uh, they need to get with the program. You know, but somebody had that thought. And again, tap into a database, probably not a huge innovation in terms of, you know, it's not making the front page of the Wall Street Journal, but it improves the customer experience at a microscopic type of level. But those are the things that differentiate your product, your offering. 
in ways that the commodified things won't. And you're only going to get those enhancements from people. There's no technology. There's no infrastructure that you're going to build. None of that. It's going to come from people. David, what you're also illustrating is how when your competition innovates and you don't, you're getting left behind. It becomes noticeable from the customer viewpoint. Exactly. David, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best Lightning Round? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. So at the beginning of our conversation, I asked you about someone who influenced or inspired you, and you talked about Gary Pratt. Mm-hmm. When you were a teenager, what was a song that influenced or inspired you? <laughs> I actually have the lyrics on my wall. They're framed right now. And Karen, my life partner, uh, wife, business partner, and co-author also has a matching set on her office wall that I gave to her. And it's the garden song, inch by inch, row by row, going to make this garden grow. All we need is rake and hoe and a piece of fertile ground. And the inspiration for me there is that you can do so much if you're willing to go inch by inch. And today it may just be an inch but another inch tomorrow and another inch, inch by inch, row by row. And the garden grows in time if we'll keep going, if we'll keep keep on inch by inching. So if you had the opportunity to put a billboard up with a slogan that every key stakeholder or decision maker had to drive past each morning, what would it say? Be the leader you'd want your boss to be. And what aspect of building a courageous culture in your own business is something that you're still endeavoring to apply or achieve at the level that you really want. I thought about this just two weeks ago when one of our team members had made a couple of different suggestions. She said, hey, I think that this email that we are sending to our people could be formatted in a better way. And here's what I would recommend to do that. And she took our idea model, which is how you vet and share an idea. Is it interesting? Does it achieve a strategic purpose? Is it doable? Is it something we can take action on? Is it engaging? Are other people going to be interested in it? And then A, what are the action? What are the next steps? She followed the model that we lay out in Courageous Cultures of how to share a meaningful idea, shared it with us, and instant traction, and the change was made three days later. In contrast, I recognized another idea she had shared that I had not followed my own best practice as a leader in terms of responding with regard. And so I am still on that journey. And it was funny to watch her teach me my own material (laughs) and say, here's what you're talking about. And she did it elegantly and beautifully. And we're all better off for it. And I learned something as a leader there too. That's terrific. What would you say is the best purchase of up to $100 you've made in the last six months? I'm going to go personal and professional. Professional, there is a, it's called Stream Deck and it is a contraption that allows me to switch between cameras and slides and scenes and so forth. So we're doing so many more virtual presentations and we do virtual training with international clients all over the world. And so that is a piece of technology that has made that much easier and more fun for them, I think. And then um, personally, I've been baking a lot of bread and got a nice food scale that has uh, allowed me to dial that in a little bit, a little bit better. And I am loving that. And what would you say is the most important habit routine or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? This might sound a little strange, but what's coming up for me is to stop working. And specifically, it's not stop working in general. I mean, look, we're all entrepreneurs uh, probably on this show. And so we all love our work and we do a lot of it. And that's just comes with the territory and we're passionate about it. That said, I have found that getting up in the morning and I used to do this. I used to get up, grab my tea, I'm a tea drinker, and go straight into to work. 
because it's easy to do. You're there at your desk and boom, start working. And I have found that to stop that has improved my overall productivity, my overall health and wellness, my emotional well-being. And so giving myself, you know, if I were driving to the office every day, I would have from the time I get up to the time I arrive somewhere between 90 minutes and two hours during which, you know, you might be with your family or exercise or read or whatever rituals you're going to do and created that space for myself. And I don't always observe it the way I need to, but I'd say 80, 90% of the time. And that makes a tremendous difference for me. And what would you say was the lesson you learned? We were talking earlier before the recording started, and you said that when you were 11, you had a scoutmaster who observed you and your fellow scouts making blueberry pancakes (laughs) and (laughs) realized, oh my gosh, there are a lot of lessons to be learned from this experience. What was the experience and what was the takeaway from that? Absolutely. So uh, the scoutmaster's name was Bud. He and Gary were were the two. And then this is actually, I tell the story in Courageous Cultures. And the reason is that as a leader, when you're thinking about getting ideas from your people, I know that there are people, you're listening to the show right now and you're saying, yeah, but what if I get an idea? And I'm like, what were you thinking? Well, Bud had to be the guy who at one point looked at me and said, what are you thinking? Because when I was 11 years old, my friends and I, we had planned our menu and we decided that for breakfast, we wanted to make blueberry pancakes. Well, it was the fall and there were no blueberries in season. So we did the next best thing. We got a can of blueberry pie filling. (laughs) None of us knew how to cook at that point. And so we just dumped that can of blueberry pie filling in the pancake batter. Well, it doesn't work that way. It like added way too much liquid, too much sugar. And so then we've got a cast iron pan on the fire and we dumped this like purpley sludge into the pan and we're like it's charred and we're kind of morosely scraping it around the bottom of the pan when bud walks by and he says oh what do we have here and we looked up at him and said blueberry pancakes (laughs) i'll never forget what he did he he could have just said hey why don't you guys cook some eggs like the other kids but he didn't he crouched down and said all right well let's see what we got here let's see what we can do with this and he walked us through just like when we were talking about respond with regard, he walked us through and said, all right, well, here's what's going on. The missing information for you is that you have added too much liquid to your batter. Now let's problem solve. What do you think you do to counteract that? He said, oh, well, maybe we need more the flour in the, the mix. He said, absolutely, let's try that. And he stirred it up. And so we ended up salvaging that batter and it they didn't look like beautiful pancakes. There were these misshapen and they kind of turned this like metallic, seafoam green color. Very strange. But Bill, I don't think I've ever tasted anything better in my life. They didn't need syrup. They didn't need butter. They were amazing. And we decided uh, Ghostbusters was popular, the first Ghostbusters movie at that time. So we decided to call them Slimers (laughs) because of the color and the original consistency. The name stuck. And I have served Slimers as an adult, I have served Slimers to my nieces and nephews on camping trips. They were that good. And and that little bit of innovation and problem solving and respond with regard that Bud modeled not only helped create an awesome breakfast food, but for leaders, it's one of those things when you think, gosh, what were they thinking? If you can respond with regard, (laughs) tamp that emotion down for just a second and ask and get curious and say, huh, what's going on here? What were you thinking? Okay, well, how can we do this? you might just find a really awesome innovation, a micro-innovation, a problem that could be solved or a better way to serve your customer. 
David, I didn't realize how many lessons would come out of that anecdote, but it is legendary. It is just such a, a great story to, to cap everything that we've talked about with courageous leaders. I just want to thank you so much for sharing the stories with your scoutmasters. Gary and Bud sound like two extraordinary leaders who not only made it cool, but really helped impart some terrific lessons as you guys were interacting with each other and developing your skills. You introduced the idea of a courage gap between what the frontline knows and practices and what leaders understand, want to know, and are asking for, but not always receiving. You helped us understand through demonstrations and examples, like with Kelly, the COO in the Florida staffing firm, of how introducing best practices and then asking people for how they're adopting it can really make a difference in getting people involved and engaged with bringing them to life. We talked about the importance of mindset and how vital it is in order to approach building a courageous culture with the right mindset. You introduced the idea of navigating the narrative and how important it is to ask what was one was a time when you took a stand and to realize that we can all build upon the courage that we've exhibited other times and add to that. I love the aphorism you shared about clarity as the antidote to uncertainty. And all of us, for these ideas and so many more, I, I just want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. It has absolutely been my pleasure, Bill. Very much enjoyed it. David, before we say goodbye for now, where's a place that we could look for, find out more about you and your work online? Sure. Two places I'm going to send you first is if you want more about Courageous Cultures, we've got an online quiz. You can pre-order and we've got all kinds of uh, bonuses and things that are available for you there, uh, as well as a cool opportunity for you and your team to unearth some of those ideas that might be hiding out. You can do all of that at CourageousCulturesBook.com. And then from there, if you'd like to know more about me or our work, we're at letsgrowleaders.com. We're going to link to those sites as well as all your social media channels in the show notes so that listeners can go there and find one easy place to find all of the ways to get in touch with you, follow you, and become more involved in the work that you're doing with Courageous Cultures and developing Courageous Teams. David Dye, author of Courageous Cultures, How to Build Teams of Micro-Innovators, Problem Solvers, and Customer Advocates. I want to thank you once again for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Thank you, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.